if I'm thinking supply and demand and demand for affordable housing is going up and supply of the specific type of affordable housing is going down, I want to be in that space because supply is going down, demand's going up. That means prices are typically going to go up. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus, and we are back with the second half of our interview with Chris Larson. Chris, welcome to the show. Dr. Mike, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. So when we finished up before, you had talked about an opportunity fund. I'm looking here and I'm seeing that you've done some private lending and distressed debt. And I think this is a hot topic in the real estate world right now. And some docs I talk to, they're worried they missed the boat. They look and they saw that multifamily had this huge rise while rates were low. And you see stories in the newspaper and they're like, oh, now's a bad time to be in real estate. I missed the boat. But as the world changes, there's different opportunities. Tell me a little bit more about opportunity funds and distressed debt, distressed properties, and what might be coming down, what's going on now that could be a bigger opportunity than we saw the last 10 years. Yeah. No, that just burned. You want to see me kind of jump out of the picture here. I grabbed a book that I'm (laughs) going to talk a little bit about. But yeah, so in my book, I talk about opportunity fund, which is if you think about it, like, what are you going to do with your capital? What are you going to do with your money while you're waiting for a deal or in between deals? And something that I discovered uh, about, well, geez, my son is, he'll be 14. um, And we started before he was born. So over 14 years ago now, but we started using cash value life insurance to use as a place to store our capital. And one of the things that I love about cash value life insurance is not only the ability to kind of like store your capital and earn a return on your capital. So that means, you know, if you're getting five or 6% in an area, well, maybe you're not as pressured to go after a deal if your money was sitting in a bank earning 0%. So I'm a fan of it that way. But also if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a doctor, if you're a surgeon, you're already facing enough risk when you go out and operate every day because patients, and I have friends that are surgeons, they've been brought into a lawsuit. It's like you don't need more exposure, more liability that's out there. One of the nice things about life insurance is it's a private contract. So you can get these benefits of the insurance policies, but they're private. So people can't kind of pry in, see what you have in there. It's also very nice from an estate planning perspective. We leverage that money. That's what we use our opportunity fund for. Um, But whether you do that or another strategy, I think it's important to have an area where you have your capital and it's not burning a hole in your pocket, right? So you know there's an opportunity cost, but there's also a return that you're getting. So that's kind of my philosophy on opportunity fund. And we have actually under banking on our website, we have a whole webinar and a white paper. You can check out more on that strategy if it interests you. But then where are we right now? Like where are we right now in the real estate cycle? And what are the opportunities that are out there? So the book that I was grabbing here, Mike, it's kind of like the Bible in my nightstand. I keep this in my drawer next to my desk here. It's called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. So if you're listening, you're not watching, it's by Philip Anderson. And Phil goes back through history and he shows how the real estate cycle repeats. And I'm a data guy. It repeats every 18, actually 18.6 years, if you look at it precisely. And it's kind of like, okay, here's this cycle, but there's cycles throughout nature. There's cycles in the human body. There's cycles in nature. 
there's cycles in finance. And why is that? One of the big things that Ray Dalio talks about this, a lot of financial experts talk about this, is credit creation and contraction cycles, right? So if you try to say, well, how is credit created? Why does it contract? What happens? Land really sits at the base of a lot of the credit that revolves out there. So if land prices go up and you can use land to buy a piece of property, you can leverage that property, and then you can sell that property and buy another piece of real estate, what is that doing? You're constantly creating credit and you're creating wealth and it creates more credit. So that expansion adds a lot of fuel to the economic fire, if we will. So I was going to say it's very accretive to the wealth of anybody that's part of that process. So Phil Anderson talks about that in the book. And if you look at kind of that 18 and a half year cycle, what you find is early on in the cycle, like my wife and I did, we started buying land and building spec homes and doing those things. And then as rents rise, it makes more sense to buy income producing real estate and develop and do things like that. As you get later on in the cycle, interest rates typically rise, real estate prices are high. So people may be thinking, investors may think, well, now is not a great time to buy real estate. But the fact of the matter, like you said, Mike, is that there's always opportunities that are out there. Right now, I'm a big fan of operating real estate. So this is pieces of real estate that kind of have like a business attached. I would call them operating real estate, like car washes. So we have 30 car wash locations. We have a business. The real estate is very beneficial from a depreciation perspective. It's a piece of real estate, but it's really a business that we're running along with the real estate. Mobile home parks, high degree of operations to become successful. Senior housing assisted living facilities. Again, highly operational, but you have that business income that supports the real estate income as well. And you still get the benefits of owning that real estate. But all of these businesses, mobile homes, car washes, senior housing, still work today even at 7 and 8% interest rates because you have that additional income. And What's great is if you're relying on a piece of real estate to be sold in the next three to five years, but maybe it's not a good time to sell. Well, we have mobile home parks that are cash flowing 10% to our investors. So do I care if I can sell that mobile home park or am I comfortable with a 10 or 12 or 13% cash on cash return that's getting kicked off from that real estate? So right now, I think this is an interesting time. And I think we can kind of also transition into kind of distress and what that may bring up as well. But I'm a big fan of those types of real estate currently as well. That's awesome. So let's make that transition into distressed assets because if you go back to 2021 or even early 2022, a lot of syndicators were offering amazing returns and they looked great. And some of those aren't panning out because we were hitting the top of a cycle. But now as that cycle shifts and you start to see some distressed assets, What does that mean for an investor who's looking right now? Yeah. So if you look back 10 or so years, we were buying distressed debt. We were buying pools of notes. And what happened was these notes were not performing. So we were buying pools of notes from banks at 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar. And now the same pools are 50 cents on the dollar. So it's not a great time to do that. I think the cycle will turn and we'll see that come back around again. So if you're an operator that bought a multifamily asset apartment building, a price that was too high and you had too much leverage and now you're struggling, you can't pay the debt service and maybe you can't afford to do the value add on that and you need capital to keep your business, to keep your real estate afloat. If you're an investor, you could potentially come in. And we just started actually, it's basically a preferred equity fund. We call it our alliance fund. And what we're doing is we are working with operators that we have relationships with 
that need that capital. And what we're able to do is we're getting very high preferred returns, 11, 12, 13% to our investors on those returns. And the way we're able to do it is because the general partners, instead of just losing the building and wiping out all investor equity, they're giving up a portion of their equity. They're giving up a portion of their ownership to keep those buildings afloat. So if you're creative and you look for these opportunities that are out there and you say, well, hey, how can I bring value to these operators? You can still get these types of returns that we were seeing three, four, five years ago in multifamily, but you have to shift your strategy a little bit. So I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like counter cyclical, but I try to be a little bit in front of where the trend is. So if something was popular five years ago, maybe it's going to fade in popularity or you know it's going to run out its time and you have to start looking forward, which is why I mentioned some of those other asset classes as well. Well, and that's great. So for people who are still new to the whole syndication game, what happens is the general partner makes a lot of their, the operator of their money of pulling off the business plan. Correct. And so what you're talking about there is they're actually taking some of what would have been their profit if it had gone right, but now they're looking at maybe a complete loss. And so they're paying a higher rate to get you to come in and bring in the cash they need keep the whole project going forward and from not going back to the bank. Correct. Yeah. So let's say I'm a general partner and I own 20 or 30% of a project, but that 20 or 30% ownership is predicated on whether or not I can pay investors their portion. So maybe we have to show investors a 10% return if I'm the owner of that project before I really start to make any money. Well, if we have a projected 20% return on a project level, and maybe investors get that 15%, and as an operator, I'm getting, say, for that 5% of the 20%, and I'm just using round numbers here, and you come to me and say, hey, you're going to be wiped out. How about we split the back-end profit, that 5% you're getting? So now I still get something, and you bring the additional capital to keep that project on track. That's a great example of how that would work in practice. And by bringing that capital and getting some of that a GP equity on the back-end, you can get outsized returns, obviously, because you're getting a substantial potential future benefit from them. It's a great example. There's often win-win situations because it sounds like you're taking part of their profit, but actually you're saving it from becoming a loss and splitting the project you brought back to life. So That's exactly right. What it actually does, so if you're an LP investor and you're thinking, well, I'm in a project like that, it typically, in the projects that we're seeing, the limited partners are still getting a return in that expected range. Maybe it's a 100 or 200 basis point decrease in project returns to those limited partners, but that's significantly more than if they were wiped out or cut their return in half, for instance. So you've been in almost every asset class, but I don't see some of my favorites there, like retail and industrial. Have you played in that area also? Yeah, great question. I don't have an aversion to retail or industrial. Our expertise was has been in multifamily for about 10 years, and that kind of spun off into self-storage as well, which is uh, very similar. I mentioned how mobile home parks are similar to that as well. We have a certain amount of bandwidth that we can have, so it's kind of led me towards areas that I like. But I think there's some big opportunities in retail, especially like maybe smaller retail, strip malls and those sorts of things, because these are typically very well located. And you know, we're not talking about big box like uh, shopping centers, but I'm talking about like retail in your prime, neighborhood retail center. Yeah, like prime 
markets. Like you can't recreate that space, right? You're seeing, you can probably attest to this, you can see double digit cap rates in those spaces right now. Industrial, I think the trends with decentralization when it comes to shipping, and you have these warehouses that are all around the country as we rely more on Amazon and those types of models. It's hard to keep up, especially if you look at the development that has occurred in places like Texas and Florida and the Southeast. Like we need more industrial. We need more like cold storage, which is a special type of industrial. So I've definitely looked into those areas. I've researched those areas. We just haven't done anything from a general partnership or operating perspective in those areas to date. And so that's more of just saying, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to do well. And when your model that you've been using, it was easy to shift it from apartment buildings to mobile home parks, but it didn't shift well to go into these other spaces. Yeah, we're just the timing wasn't aligned and we had a different opportunity that presented itself. So um, for instance, we have a senior housing opportunity currently. We have a mobile home park acquisition, which actually I'm not sure when this airs, but like actual date today, we'll be touring that facility tomorrow. We have our preferred equity, our alliance fund that we launched. And we also have two car washes that we're finalizing right now. So you want to stay on track with everything that you're doing. And we have grown into more of a real estate specific private equity firm. But I think retail and industrial may be in our future, but we just haven't gotten to those at the moment. Uh, that's great. Well, we're usually about a month out by the time it airs. So if, yeah. if somebody hears this and they yeah. want to get a hold of Chris, they can find out where the mobile home park is. Mobile home parks are interesting because it's all these communities are, they talk about workforce housing and affordable housing, <laughs> but a lot of them don't like mobile home parks. So getting a new mobile home yeah. park built is almost impossible. Yeah. On a large scale, it is. Yeah. And so when you look at some of these mobile home parks, is this a big value add with some of the older established parks that are available right now? Yeah. So again, I think in the first episode that I was on your show here, we talked a little bit about how mobile homes are, in my view, kind of like multifamily. They're kind of like a, a version of multifamily. And the issue is you have a lot of not in my backyard, NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard. So people have an aversion and I've seen this actually from investors too. They're like, well, I don't want to invest in a mobile home park. They're like, why is that? And I think people think that, and a lot of times what I find is those individuals, they've never stepped foot on a mobile home park property. When I was in my youth group growing up, we used to go to Appalachia and we would improve a lot of homes that people lived in. And most of the time they were mobile or modular homes because it's the most affordable thing that's out there. So I can appreciate, especially if you're an accredited investor and you make a lot of money, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in a mobile home park. That's not necessarily the absolute, but it's a generality for sure. The other issue is, if you're here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I am, Asheville says, well, we need more affordable housing, but we don't want mobile home parks. And why would you not want mobile home parks from a municipality or a town or a city? And it's not necessarily the highest and best use from a tax base either because you're going to get more money from a house. Mobile home is technically a depreciating asset. So you have that lot rent, but you're not going to have the same tax base as if you had housing, apartments, or even affordable homes, like three, $400,000, for instance. So you have the pull on both sides. You have the pull from neighborhoods of people might not necessarily want that near them. And then you have the pull from the cities that would rather have something different and what's happening is those two forces, what they're doing is they're actually squeezing the supply. So 
on a year-over-year basis, we have less mobile home parks than we did the year before. So again, I'm a numbers guy. If I'm thinking supply and demand, and demand for affordable housing is going up, and supply of the specific type of affordable housing is going down, I want to be in that space because you know, like the stock market, that's like your PE ratio, right? Supply is going down, demand's going up. That means prices are typically going to go up. But what type of strategy do we use in this space? We are going after in partnership with my friend and operator here in Asheville over parks that are typically less than $10 million or portfolios that are less than $10 million. So typically like two to 5 million, the one we're buying in South Carolina is under contract for just over $7 million for four parks. And what we do is we go after parks, Mike, that are very under managed. And what I mean is they're typically 50 to 75% occupied. Now, why would you want to buy a park that's 50% occupied? They're not great cap rates, four, five, 6% cap rates, but that's as is. So if you can come in and you can put homes or recruit residents that have homes to your park, you can increase income dramatically. And what we do is we actually have an in-house financing arm with our partner. And what we do is we can own or finance homes. We bring in homes, we own or finance them. A resident can come in, either buy the home or rent the home. We typically like to sell it. So it's not a park-owned home, it's a tenant-owned home. And what that does is it rapidly increases income. And then what we can do is we can refinance these parks within typically two to three years and return 100% of investor capital while achieving eight, nine, 10 plus percent cash flows to investors. So it provides really nice returns for investors. The parks aren't real big. So bigger groups, bigger institutional groups aren't interested. And banks don't like to lend to parks that are only 50% occupied. So we do a lot of seller financing, which works in today's higher interest rate environment. So there's an example of how are higher interest rates good for real estate? Well, if you're selling and you can get a 6 7 8% interest rate, if you own or finance to us, that's good for you as a seller. You delay your tax bill, you get a nice return on your money. Like five years ago, you weren't doing that at 4% interest rates. So you add all of those things together. And what we do is we've actually created a fund. So we have just under 500 lots in that fund to date. Our target is 1,500 to 2,000 lots in that fund. So investors are going to get really nice diversification, really nice cash flows. And we have parks all across the Southeast, as well as Kansas, Ohio, and Missouri as well. So that's a great point. We talked a little bit about the stigmas of parks. So as an investor, you're getting a 10%-ish return, which is pretty good, especially when you look at what the stock market's doing right now and what you're helping provide. So if you're filling in this park that was half full and somebody, you bring in the mobile home and you park it there and you sell it to somebody. So for them, it's a new home. What's the cost of buying a new home in this scenario? Yeah. So like we can also buy used homes. We're typically looking at purchasing mobile or modular homes between ten and fifty thousand dollars, but more in that median range, twenty, thirty thousand dollars is more typical, is what we typically do. And so a new mobile home, somebody could get a new home for under fifty thousand dollars. Under fifty thousand dollars, that's right. And where else are they going to get a new home for under fifty thousand dollars? I mean, that's pretty cool. And there's part of the stigma of it. Now they own the home, they pay rent on the lot. What do you take better care of? Something you own or something that somebody else owns? And that's a different environment in a lot of mobile home parks that goes against, I think, the standard 
thought of what it is because whenever you see a mobile home in a movie it's usually the uh <laughs> that's a good point yeah yeah it's you don't see the luxury mobile home parks that they have in florida or they don't see the parks like the ones we bought in kansas you don't see the ones that we're looking at in south carolina that are nice like they have infrastructure the roads are nice some of these communities that, that we've been to like they have fences and private dog yards and ponds and wi-fi included and that's not necessarily the norm for what we do but that's not what people typically think of. And the other thing, Mike, you brought up a great point. It kind of creates this U-shaped return profile or performance profile. And again, I put this kind of in the multifamily space because you have a class A property, you know, it typically performs very well. You have high collections. As you go down the spectrum, you get into subsidized housing, C-class properties. They don't perform as well, especially during downturns. But mobile home parks do perform well during downturns. Why is that? If you own the home, it's going to cost you $5,000 to move a home. Are you not going to pay your two, three, $400 a month lot rent and lose your home? Or are you going to pay $5,000 and move your home down the road, which typically at the lower end of lot rents in an area that we buy? Because as I mentioned, we're buying underperforming parks. And someone may be listening saying, well, it's not fully occupied because your rents are too high. No, it's not fully occupied because the owner has either owned it for a long period of time and they don't have the capital to infuse to improve the park or bring in the homes. And they're not raising rents because they can't lose any more residents that are there. And they're probably getting decent cash flow. So we typically are in a really good spot, even during recessions and downturns because of all those factors. You know, that's an interesting point about the sellers because the demographic we're talking about now of where the world's going is. There's a good number of aging baby boomers across asset spectrums who are looking to retire and are selling, but maybe if for the last 10 or more years, if somebody's 75 and at 65, they kind of retired, they turned their real estate engine off and went on coast. And as you get older, if you've got all your insurance set, your actual spending goes down and so these assets, whether it's a neighborhood retail center or a mobile home park or a little apartment building, is still churning off money and it often is enough money. And right. you're getting older, you're not as interested in messing with it, you have enough money. And so this asset kind of decays in under management. And it doesn't mean the building often decays, especially a lot of assets. Well, the mobile home park, if you're moving in new homes, the old homes that may have been there 10 years ago have decayed and gone away, but the park is still fine. That's right. Or, yeah. yeah, or it needs some infrastructure improvements, maybe new paving. Let me give you an example, because what you said is exactly right. We bought five parks in Tennessee, right across the border from where I live in North Carolina last year. And we bought them from two brothers. And these brothers were school teachers. And one, I think, had moved into administration. The other was like the school's football coach. So they'd been around and they were getting towards retirement. And we bought these parks from them for about $2 million. Well, let's say they were getting $100,000 a year in cash flow. If you do the math, that's a 5% cap rate on the price we paid. But let's say they only paid a half a million dollars for those parks. That's a 20% cap rate from what they paid. So they're thinking, hey, $500,000 we paid for these five parks. We're getting $100,000 a year. We're splitting it, plus making you know decent salaries as uh, teachers, administrators. That ain't bad. Well, for them to invest another half a million dollars in cash wasn't feasible for them to get where the parks needed to be. 
so we were able to raise the capital to buy those parks, raise the capital to make the improvements in those parks and bring, as we were talking about earlier, more homes into the parks. All those things are going to improve the value. But a large group that's buying mobile home parks, they're not going to mess with five little parks that cost $2 million. And mom and pops that are own 85% of these parks aren't going to be able to come in and do what we do as a larger group that's able to raise five plus million dollars per acquisition. So again, using the demographic trends, not just from the renters or the residents profile, but also from the seller's profile helps us target these parks and where to buy those. And the nice thing is these parks work pretty much anywhere in America. Now you want to be in areas that are thriving like Dayton, Ohio, which is where one of our acquisitions is outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Like This is where we want to buy. But typically, affordable housing works in almost any area that has a decent economic base in this country. That's great. And the guy's leaving. So they paid a half a million dollars for it. They were making $100,000 a year on it. Now they sell it $2 million. Oh, yeah. That they split $2 million a- bucks. It's legit, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was not a bad way to head into retirement. Yeah, exactly. Well, is there anything else? So we've been through a bunch of stuff here. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? For most of our listeners are doctors, but we've got some other people out there that I've talked to have been surprised that are engineers and tech people. But any last pearls of wisdom you'd like to share with them? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Look, first off, I love your logo too, by the way, with the Surgeon Syndicate that's oh, thank in the you. back. And look, we really love working with professionals. I spent almost 20 years, 18 years in the medical device profession, worked with really hundreds of doctors and surgeons over that period. Please get a free copy of our book at nextlevelincome.com. You can click on the book link. We'll send you a free copy if you put your address in there. We're launching a new eight-week coaching course, group coaching course in the new year. And if you go and you click on the resources link under coaching, you'll see all the details that are up there. You can get our online course with the code NEXTLEVEL at $500 off. So we try to have free resources, coaching programs, And then if you're listening, you're like, Chris, how do I get involved with some of these things? You can click on the invest link and schedule a call with our team to see if this might be a good fit for what you're looking for. And a key thing there is that won't be a sales call. They're going to find out if what they got is a good fit for you. That's exactly right. Yeah. We want to make sure that it goes both ways. We want to learn our investors. And I don't have a sales team. We have an investor relations team and we want people that think this is a good fit for them and we let them make those choices. Because unhappy investors are more work than they're worth. So you want a good fit (laughs) as much as they want a good fit. (laughs) Indeed. So, all right, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Mike, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for joining us today on the Surgeon Syndicate and join us next time. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.